Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlenchamp, and for this week's conversation, three people from the Common Good Collective talked to Terrence Lester about his newest book, When We Stand, The Power of Seeking Justice Together, and a video series he recorded on empathy. Terrence starts the conversation by introducing himself and his work at his organization, Love Beyond Walls. My name is Terrence Lester. I am the founder and executive director of Love Beyond Walls. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia. We do work specifically around narrative justice, and we build intentional relationships with people uh, without an address as a way of including them in the much larger framework of society and culture, but also providing critical resources to balance the scales of inequity to help them escape homelessness. And so we've been doing this work for about seven years, and I'm oftentimes asked, why this work? Uh, I was 16 and a half years old when I uh, decided to run away from home. Uh, I remember having all of my clothes in a, you know, two trash bags. I, I landed at this gas station and I was begging for change at this gas station. This guy walks up to me because it was late at night and he asked me, he says, young man, what are you doing out here? Don't you have school uh, tomorrow? And I just kind of brushed that off and I said, I need, I need change to try to get somewhere because I had to use the payphone and payphones required change back then. He reluctantly gave me those those coins and I picked up the phone and I called Mr. Moore. Well, uh, my friend Eric, uh, his father is Mr. Moore. I called Eric first and I said, hey, I said, hey, e, uh, do you think your family would allow me to come over to get something to eat? Uh, because I think I may be sleeping in a park tonight. And you could hear the hesitancy on the phone. It got quiet. And then he says, sure, I'll be right back. He put down the phone. You can hear his footsteps going across the floor. And then he comes back all excited. And he says, come on over. My family loves you. Yeah. And so I remember the long drive over with hardly any gas in my car. And I arrived and, you know, flash forward to Mr. Moore walking out of the house with, you know, food in, his, uh, in one hand. And uh, he walks up to the car and he has me roll down the window even more. And he tells me to look at him in his eyes. It's probably the first time in my life I was ever able to look at a man in his eyes. Uh, and I'm 16 and a half years old without any fear, right? And he, he looks at me, he says, you know what you are? And I said, what is that? He says, you are a leader. Man, I tell you, I didn't feel like a leader at that moment because here it is. I'm, you know, about to sleep in a car. I feel socially excluded, even in the context of my own family. Uh, this guy saw something good in me. Uh, he later became a mentor to me, encouraged me to finish high school, put myself through college, uh, marry my wife, and eventually showed me how the struggles of my youth could be leveraged in a way to actually advocate on behalf of other people going through the same experiences. And so he was one of the catalytic people in my life that encouraged me to pursue a formal organization or starting a formal organization. And, and the first year that I started Love Beyond Walls, he passed away. Wow. What a story. Thanks for sharing that. So you used the term at the towards the beginning of that. The term was narrative justice. Unpack that for us a little bit. 
there are dominant narratives that persist in society and culture about uh, people who are impoverished or poor. Uh, oftentimes in my talks talk about who controls the narratives or the frames, the, the mental frames of those who are experiencing these inequalities. And, and oftentimes those narratives are controlled by people who have never been it, have never been someone who has experienced homelessness. Those narratives paint a false identity or a false picture of who people really are that wrestle with impoverishment or the experience of homelessness, right? And uh, those narratives can also be very damaging because when people feed into those narratives that build social constructions about uh, people experiencing homelessness, then people have this very criminal view of people who are poor. The language like poor people are lazy or people experiencing homelessness or addicted to drugs and alcohol or those persons have mental health issues or they don't have any morals or values or character, et cetera, right? And so we allow those social constructions to feed how we view people. And what I'm talking about is if we're going to act justly, then those narratives that have been very destructive and dehumanizing to people who are living on the margins need to be torn down. And that's when we come in and we say, we're going to strip the microphone away from those who hold the dominant narratives, and we're going to put it back in the hands of people who can tell their own stories, have their dignity affirmed by you know, having their voices not silenced. There was a time in my life where I used to feed into this idea, you know, we're going to be a voice to to the voiceless. That's false. Everybody has a voice. There's some that has been silenced and there's others who are given a platform to have their narratives uh, shared. Narrative justice is correcting the false narratives that persist of those who are marginalized, who are excluded, who are overlooked, and who are deemed invisible in society and culture. And so, yeah, that's what I mean. I love it. Thank you for that terminology. Courtney is and I think Shannon are, and myself are all kind of actively doing that work. So I'm going to borrow your language some, if you don't mind that. Yeah, we'll definitely attribute it to you, man. But that is that is a powerful phrase and a powerful frame. And um, when you were describing the work at, of Love Beyond Walls, I'm thinking about it's Oscar season. There's a lot of buzz around Judas and the Black Messiah. And there's been a lot of talk around the, the work of the Black Panthers. And something that I admire so much about the Black Panther Party and Huey Newton is that they had an emphasis on the intangible and the tangible. They, they worked towards justice, but they also worked towards meeting people's immediate needs. I was just so compelled by that dual work that you're doing. You're, you're bringing awareness, you're uplifting the voices of those on the margins, but you're also meeting their immediate needs. But yeah, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about how you're meeting that need and then how you're also like, how are you uplifting those voices? It's funny how you bring up Judas and the Black Messiah. And, and that's a form of narrative justice that we're talking about because there is a you know, a program called COINTELPRO that demonized uh, this group of people who were actively involved in their communities and providing free breakfast programs and all of these wonderful things. And so those narratives painted a very 
evil view of who these people were, which is why narrative justice is so important. And I think what you're talking about is relief work versus developmental work. I encounter so many people that always say, well, you need to teach a man how to fish, right? Those phrases are so destructive because my rebuttal to that is you can teach a man how to fish, but if you don't feed him while he's learning, he'll pass out before he catches anything. It's relief work and it's development work. It's it's advocating and it's walking with people. And I think that dual work is so necessary because I can't teach you how to swim while you're still drowning. I need to be able to lift you up in a way and meet your basic needs, but also be a representative and a guidepost or a signpost as to what's possible. And what I'm saying is that people not only need to have their basic needs met, but they need people to actually be proximate enough and present enough to continue to walk with them as they're overcoming uh, their struggle. You talk about an empathy deficit. So I wonder if you could talk a little, I think you're, you're sort of starting to get there with being proximate as a key factor in the empathy deficit. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Maybe what you see some of its roots as? Yes. Great question. A little over a year ago, we started to hear the terminology social distancing. Like what? We're about to be apart from one another. We can't be in community or in close proximity with one another. And everybody was just throwing this term around. Uh, We're socially distant, but we're still together, which was very disheartening to me because I was thinking about a group of people who have been socially distant long before the pandemic. People were socially distant from people experiencing homelessness through criminalizing laws like you can't share food or you can't stand or sit in certain places that other people of privilege are able to access these same places and spaces. When some of my friends go into restaurants and ask for cups of water, they're looked at with cold stares and mean mugs, right? Social distancing has been happening to people experiencing all of these disparities long before the pandemic. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why has this happened? Why do people feel the need to exclude certain groups of people based upon disability or economics or age or gender or whatever it is, but then find a way to include certain people, right? It's because we have based worth and value with the external things, like what kind of car you drive, you know, what school did you go to? What fraternity or sorority are you a part of? What kind of coffee do you drink? Where do you buy that coffee? All these extrinsic things we use as the metrics to define worth. And if we start there, the people who don't have access to those things, are they less worthy? What I like to do is start with the intrinsic worth and value of every single person, which uh, gives us an opportunity to understand that dignity is inherent and we, we have the opportunity or the obligation to affirm every single person's worth and value who has breath in their lungs. The reason I think there is an empathy deficit is because of this very thing, that we have been together but distant from one another, uh, that when we talk about community, we don't talk about community in, in the context of a whole community. We're talking about the community in the context of who we associate with, who we like to point out, who we follow, who we are like to be around, who, who has our interest. Forgetting that when we do these types of things, that we are further distancing ourselves from the very people who need love, care, and attention also. 
when I talk about the empathy deficit, I think it is caused by how we have chosen to measure worth and value in our country. We have also gotten into this place because we haven't been proximate to one another because we have been distant. Think about it. It's called inattentional blindness. Think about the times that you drive down the street and you pass by the same things over and over and over and over and over again. And then finally, you don't even remember when you pass the thing, you know, it's just there. That's the same approach that we take with people, with spaces, with communities. We pass by them so much, we become inattentionally blind to them where we don't even notice them anymore. And that is a form of distance. When things erupt, like racial tension, when we get a real sense of what voter suppression looks like, uh, the disparities that happen, then we're like shocked, like, oh, wow, like, when did that happen? Well, it's always been happening, but we have not made ourselves available to be compassionate and open ourselves up to understand the world of another. Henry Nowen talks about compassion. He says, real and true compassion is when you leave your world and enter into the, the world of another to weep with those who weep to suffer with those who suffer, to mourn with those who mourn, etc. He's going on in this order telling us that true compassion is really emptying of yourself to understand the world of another. And I, I think that's what we're missing right now. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast. Today's poem comes from Marie Howe. It's called Singularity. Do you sometimes want to wake up to the singularity we once were? So compact, nobody needed a bed or food or money. Nobody hiding in the school bathroom or home alone, pulling open the drawer where the pills are kept. For every atom belonging to me is good belongs to you. Remember? There was no nature, no them, no test to determine if the elephant grieves her calf or if the coral reef feels pain. Trashed oceans don't speak English or Farsi or French. Would that we could wake up to what we were when we were ocean. And before that, to when sky was earth and animal was energy and rock was liquid and stars were space and space was not at all nothing. Before we came to believe humans were so important. Before this awful loneliness. Can molecules recall it? What once was? Before anything happened, no I, no we, no one, no was, no verb, no noun, only a tiny, tiny dot brimming with is, 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 all everything home. As we return, Greg asks Terrence a question about the limits of proximity and the need for intentional engagement. The uh, excerpt that we had from your book with, that we've been reading and that I hope we'll share a little bit begins with the story of you driving through a neighborhood that has all the sort of the signs of, you know, the legacy of racial oppression and, uh, and of entrenched poverty. And then all of a sudden you turn the corner and you're in this space of gentrification, right? And it, it begins to look very different. I think about that a lot in the context that I work in, that just being close together physically is not sufficient to solve that empathy gap. It takes some other practices to get there, including listening to one another and, and this narrative justice work that you're doing. It's true that you can be in a crowd and still feel like you're not in community or that you don't have a space to belong. And I think what you're saying is so dynamic. It does 
take this intentional engagement, this intentional, I hate to use the term bridge building, but engagement with, with neighbor, where we notice them beyond the man or the woman that's standing on the street corner, but we find unique ways to engage and invite them into uh, spaces. I think what has happened is that although we exist in community and we're proximate uh, geographically or physically to one another, we still have up walls, right? And you have to make the shift in your mind where you're saying, I'm not going to erect taller walls. I'm going to build longer tables. And the shift in that mentality, when you start thinking about building longer tables, you're thinking about giving invitations to people who have been excluded that needs to be included into that space and place. It reminds me of something else you wrote, which is that a lot of people feel motivated to get involved in social justice work because they want to do something actionable that they can point to that's external. When in fact, while that's important, something even more profound happens on the inside, the shift of the heart. Can we talk about that? Or do you know a story that can illustrate when you've seen that kind of transformation happen? We were at the center. There was these two guys, they were in the back of our building and somebody ran around. I think it was one of our neighbors and said, there's somebody uh, digging in your trash can. These two guys were uh, looking for lunch. We had volunteers in the front. Everybody got nervous. I, I didn't really get nervous. I left out. I walked around the building and instead of calling the police, I engaged uh, these persons in a conversation. Not only that, I invited those persons to come into the center where all of the volunteers were that were just there to do this good work. We started this conversation with Mark as well as Ronald. Ronald starts to talk about how he had been out of touch with his family members for 30 years. 30 years. You imagine being isolated, you know, going to jail, roaming around, losing touch with your own people. Nobody knows where you are. You don't know where they are. You don't have access to a cell phone, et cetera. And it was this volunteer in the corner. She started crying. These persons were as far as East is from West, economically, socially, probably politically, whatever. But this lady had a story that was similar to Ronald's story. And afterwards, everybody left. She kind of lingered behind and she says, I want to do, I want to use my skills and my talents to, to kind of help Ronald find his, his family members. She, she was a researcher, had a knack for researching. Little did I know that she would start to come up there one hour a week uh, over the next three weeks uh, because we allowed Ronald and Mark to, to live on our property. We created the space uh, to provide housing. But she came up there one hour a week for three weeks. And because of her research and her offering her uh, talents and skill sets, Ronald was able to reunite with his family members that he had been out of touch with 30 years. He learned that his mom passed, his father had passed, but he was able to re re reunite with his sister. And I could slowly start to see the shift of this person, this volunteer, go from this is just something that I'm casually doing to pat myself on the back, brag about this at work or in church, to this is a living, breathing human being that deserves to have their dignity affirmed. And I want to offer any and every talent that I have uh, to come alongside this person to help them reunite with their family. And that's what happened.
So something that I'm I'm kind of struck by about you is these layers of of this lived experience. So you you had a very difficult childhood and and you know coming into young adulthood. So you have the lived experience, and then you also have your faith, and you also have a scholarship. Um, you are finishing up your PhD. Is that correct? I'm halfway through. You're halfway through. You're, you're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's happening, yeah. <laughs> and I and yeah. I I think it's a very unique combination and I I would love to know the interplay of those parts of who you are and how that shows up in your work particularly your faith but also the scholarship how that kind of wraps around this community building work that you're doing normally uh when I viewed the academy it was always from a distance when I was overcoming a lot of the obstacles, like this sort of elitism that happens in, in the academy, who's able to access education, whose knowledge is being accessed, uh, what authors, etc., are people reading and all of these different things. And then I slowly started to realize as I started to build like my own personal library and, and do my own independent scholarship, I would have these beautiful conversations with uh, some elders in my community that helped me to see that I had something special to bring to the table, that I had something special to contribute to society. My story was unique within itself and it didn't have to be cookie cutter in a way that fits the the natural or traditional mold of what we view as uh, scholarship. And once I realized that I had something to offer, I then started to realize that research could be used for social change, that there is a, a special place with research, that we're not just researching for the sake of researching and having things sit on a shelf where only those who have access to universities and our elite can access this information, but I can actually use and leverage these ideas or this new knowledge to, to teach and to educate and to build empathy, but also to empower people in community. I'm doing a, a public policy PhD. And even knowing that the hidden power dynamics of politics, where politicians use this, this hidden power dynamic called the law of non-decisions. The law of non-decisions uh, gives a politician the ability to leave off of the public agenda or the agenda, the interests and concerns of a community member. And the connection between that and what drives apathy in dense areas and communities where people are saying, well, why, why don't I see the issues that are plaguing these communities talked about? It's because somebody that is in power is leveraging this law of non-decision that you don't even know about. How do you access or mobilize people in the community to realize their own strengths and their own powers, et cetera, so they can discover uh, their sense of self and their voices where they can speak up about issues? Knowing that information and just sitting with that it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. But if I know the information and I can teach other nonprofit leaders or even people in the community, then maybe people will show up at a, a meeting and say, hey, council member, <laughs> that's not right. Or uh, a question like, why are council meetings happening when everybody who is deemed poor at or at work? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's also a, a hidden power dynamic of uh, helping bad policies to be passed and all this stuff. And so the education can be used as a way to create more social change. That's what I'm on a journey of, not to just empower myself, but to use 
what I'm being empowered with to create change around me. Thanks for listening. Join the Common Good Collective this Thursday, April 29th for a jazz listening party with special guests, Dave Ramirez Gonzalez, Greg Jarrell, and John McKnight. Find the registration link in the show notes along with everyone's bios, as well as the links to Terrence's book and his video series. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and produced by one of my favorite people, Joey Taylor, with music from Jeff Gorman.